It's Monday, January 31st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. You're seeing them everywhere, and oddly, there's still not enough to get Americans all the stuff they want. Tractor trailers and delivery trucks have taken over the roads. While all these deliveries are solving one problem and getting us what we need, it's creating new problems such as damage to roads and even homes as they take up more space on residential streets. Atlanta, in particular, has been hit hard as it has two of the top five truck bottlenecks in the country. David Harrison, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how this trend will continue with infrastructure projects on their way and no slowing down of online orders. Next, Idaho is sitting on one of the most important elements on Earth, cobalt. Needed for the production of lithium-ion batteries for use in electric vehicles, mining companies are beginning to set up operations in what is known as the Idaho Cobalt Belt. It's an interesting development and a look at how the clean energy revolution is reshaping the landscape and posing some environmental risks. Most of the cobalt supply is mined in the Congo and sent to China, so it's important that we're able to mine domestically. Michael Holtz, contributor to The Atlantic, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We're seeing a lot of trucks on the road, but um, but yes, I mean, the industry says they need more drivers, 80,000 more drivers just to meet the demand. So, I mean, right. I think it's a sign that just the demand to, for, for, for freight to move stuff, you know, from point A to point B is, is just really, really high right now. Joining us now is David Harrison, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, David. Of course. Wanted to take a, a look, an interesting look you wrote up about America's roads right now. They're being clogged up by trucks, which is an interesting thing because we've been hearing for a while now throughout the pandemic and uh, suffering through all these supply chain issues. We're hearing that we're short 80,000 truck drivers to help get those products and all those items across the country. But what we're also seeing is that still the amount of traffic from trucks is higher than it was in the previous years. It's expected to keep growing. And, you know, while we're solving one problem, getting products to people around the country, we're creating others because these trucks are damaging a lot of the roads and increasingly getting into smaller neighborhoods. So, David, what are we seeing? Yeah, so I mean, what you describe is all is all correct. You know, since the pandemic, the, rec- the economic recovery from the pandemic, unlike previous re- uh, recoveries, has been really marked by a big increase in people's consumptions of goods. So, you know, you may recall when we were all stuck at home, uh, we just bought a lot of stuff online and had it delivered, right? I mean, that's kind of that was the big story of the pandemic, and it wasn't just households; it was also businesses. Uh, you know, you bought a lot of stuff, and so it had to be shipped to you. And then the, the, the companies, the manufacturers that made that stuff needed to make more stuff, and they needed more parts and equipment to make that stuff and send it to warehouses and factories. And that whole process, that whole cycle basically can't work without trucks, you know, which moves stuff from factories to warehouses and warehouses to your door. So, you know, when you had this sort of very goods-driven uh, recovery, economic recovery, you, by definition, almost have to have more and more trucks on the road. So the demand for trucking went through the roof. And what that meant was rates, truck rates went up. So trucks, truckers are making a lot of money right now because it's just, a, you know, it's basic supply and demand. There's just not enough of them. And there's a huge amount of demand. So pretty much every trucker out there is working and working a lot. And every truck out there is on the road a lot. And so you're seeing a lot of miles. You're seeing a lot of trucks on the road, but um, but yes, I mean the industry says they need more drivers, eighty thousand more drivers, just to meet the demand. So I mean right. I think it's a sign that 
just the demand to, for 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 freight to move stuff, you know, from point A to point B is is just really really high right now. There's data on a lot of different aspects of this, but one of the things that we use is called the truck utilization rate. So it measures the share of trucks that are on the road. And in the second and third quarter of last year, we hit 100%, meaning every truck and every driver that was available was on the road uh, working. So, I mean, that's we're, we're at that limit. And to your point, right, we need more truck drivers. But let's talk a little bit about the damage that they pose, because they do tear up the streets, obviously. And in some cases, in some areas, they're taking a little too wide of a turn running into people's yards. Uh, there was an example you had here where a, a lady put like boulders to kind of protect her yard and the truck just ran them over. She had a higher forklift to bring them back. Yeah, that, that particular instance is a neighborhood that's had, you know, for a long time, has had an issue with with trucks, it's just the way it's positioned and, and the way, you know, there, there's the way that's set up. There's a, uh, a main road where trucks go by that that, that uh, carries them from a, an area with a lot of warehouses to an interstate. So they have to use this main road to get from the warehouses to the interstate. But there's also this, there's a bridge over the road that tends to be a little bit too low or the truckers think it's too low to go for them to go underneath it. So they try to, to make a detour. And in so doing, they go through this residential neighborhood. What's interesting in that case, though, is people there say they've just lately have seen a lot more trucks than they have in the past. Uh, and, you know, I've been there. It's, just, it's a very it's a very nice neighborhood. It's sort of narrow streets, uh, tall trees, very, very, you know, very shady, very nice, very pleasant. Um, and you, you can see you see these streets. I mean, they're just not designed. They're just not made to have sort of 18 wheelers go down. You know, the, the turns are very sharp. The streets are narrow. So inevitably, yeah, you have situations like that where trucks trying to get back to the interstates end up having to drive over lawns. And so you have the situation where people put traffic cones or boulders to try to prevent that from happening. So that's kind of like, a, a, I guess, an example in that particular case of what it means to have 18-wheelers in your neighborhood. But, you know, more broadly, like the Atlanta area where, where the story is mostly set, you know, in general, has seen a lot more trucks because it's a real, Atlanta is a real kind of logistics hub. You know, it's where a lot of warehouses, a lot of distribution centers are, are around there. And so just people in the entire Atlanta area, have, or, you know, say they're the, whenever they pull out of the driveway, they're just kind of swarmed with, with trucks everywhere they go. And it's, you know, it, it can pose, as you say, uh, problems for pavements because trucks are, are, are much more damaging on pavements than, than smaller vehicles. And that's, that's something ultimately, you know, taxpayers have to deal with because it's the state, the State Department of Transportation that ends up having to repave the road and widen the road. And ultimately, the burden kind of falls on, on taxpayers. Right. And to your point, right, about how we pay for road maintenance. So 35 to 40 percent of highway maintenance costs are attributed to trucks, to, you know, these big uh, uh, 18 wheelers, the tractor trailers, all that. Uh, a lot of times they, you know, they park on shoulders of the highway. They park all sorts of places. So, you know, they, they're kind of all over the place. But so what is being done to, I guess, either get more money to help with those maintenance costs? I know there's things about uh, raising taxes on gas and or on the trucks or the truckers themselves. You know, there's a lot of uh, ideas thrown around on how to increase the money that we have for maintenance costs. So the, the um, you know, the big infrastructure bill that, that um, President Biden signed in November, roughly a one trillion dollar bill over five years. I mean, that that included an awful lot of money to do just that. I mean, it would. It would you know there's, there's a lot of a lot of a lot of the programs in there are specifically designed for freight right so it would uh, kind of fix up the infrastructure kind of do a lot of capital projects a lot of building projects 
to speed up uh, freight and to uh, ideally make you know make it safer, make it uh, make it easier for the for trucks and, and and cars to coexist. But as far as just your day to day maintenance, uh, a lot of that falls on sort of state and local governments, and they've been sort of dealing with paving ish pavement issues you know forever. And you know in Georgia specifically, I mean they've they've just launched this big um, eleven billion dollar kind of program to you know specifically designed to sort of make it easier to fix some of the issues brought about by, by trucks. So, so yeah, I mean, this is the sort of thing where it's basically going to come down to, to public spending to address. And um, as you mentioned, I mean, a lot of the damage comes from heavier vehicles themselves. And they do pay taxes on, 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 on trucks are higher than taxes on regular cars. But I think some studies have found that it basically doesn't cover the entire cost. So there's, right. there is like an extra cost there. Being born by being born by society. Well, it's an interesting predicament, right? The trucks are everywhere now. We need more trucks just to clear everything that we've been going through with the supply chain issues. But they're gonna, it's gonna extend, you know, right? People are increasingly ordering more online, and we want it fast. And this is the fastest way to get it to people. So, uh, yeah. yeah, we'll see how well, that, we'll see how that keeps going. David Harrison, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure thing, absolutely. You know, I think a lot of people perhaps don't realize some of the complicating factors that go into things like electric vehicles. On the one hand, yes, electric vehicles are the future. You see more and more companies moving towards that, but there is a cost associated with them. Joining us now is Michael Holtz, contributor to The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Yeah, happy to be here. We're going to be talking about cobalt. It's a, uh, a precious metal. It's a hard silvery gray metal. We use it to make heat resistant alloys for jet engines. We use it mostly for lithium ion batteries for electric vehicles. And as we know, the EV market has been taking off. There's there's a greater demand for it. So in turn, there's a greater demand for, for cobalt, things like that. And what we're seeing is we get most of the cobalt from the Congo where it's mined. Uh, they send most of it to China and, um, you know, here in the United States, the demand is so high, we're looking for other places. So Idaho, of all places, is sitting on one of the biggest deposits of, co- uh, of cobalt that we have in the country. It's called the Idaho Cobalt Belt, 34-mile-long stretch. And uh, what we're seeing is a couple of big operations starting to move in the area, starting to change the landscape, starting to try and mine more cobalt here domestically. Uh, so, Michael, tell us some more about it. So, yeah, I mean, the Idaho Cobalt Belt, it's been known about for a long time. And as I write my article, historically, there had been what at the time in the mid 20th century, the only cobalt operation in the U.S. And then as demand fell off in the late 1950s, that operation got shut down. And it's only more recently, as you were explaining, largely because of the EV market, that interest has sort of returned to this cobalt belt. And so right now you see six different companies who are at different stages of mining and exploring inside the belt, trying to start operations, including one named Gervois Mining, which will be starting mining operations this this coming July. And, you know, one of the interesting things about it is that we know there's cobalt there, but nobody really knows how much is there. So we do have these six companies that are starting to get involved and some are, as you mentioned, at different stages. But a lot of other companies that might be getting into this are in this kind of wait and see approach. Let's see how they start doing. Let's see where the price of cobalt is, you know, in a few years. And then we might start seeing an even bigger boom of other companies starting to get into the Idaho cobalt belt. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, Gervois, sort of the first company to um, have a mine under construction there. There's another company that's not far behind. But even so, I mean, the former owner of what is now the Gervois mine first started looking into operations in this area going back to around 2010, 2011. And because of the volatility in the cobalt market, it wasn't until recently that economically it actually made sense and was feasible for companies like these that are moving in there to actually open up mines. You had a chance to go down there to check out some of these mining sites, the old site that was there previously, the new site that's popping up and being constructed. Tell us about that. Where is it located? What does it look like around there? Because the other part of this story, cobalt mining here domestically, is that it definitely changes the landscape. There's a lot of environmental factors that go into it. Yeah, of course. And I mean, that was one of the reasons I was really interested in doing this story, because you're right, it is in central Idaho. It's a part of the country called the Salmon Chalice National Forest. The nearest town is several miles away. It's called it's called Salmon, but these mines are, you know, really in this remote forest that you have to take gravel and dirt roads down to get. It's a couple hour drive from town to get to these operations. And you're right. I mean, the Gervois mine, for example, even just to get to its operations, you have to drive through what is now essentially a Superfund site. This historic Blackbird mine that I mentioned earlier was operating in the 1950s kept operating on and off for several more, more decades. But then the 1980s um, and early 1990s, there was a, a series of, of, of legal battles that led the EPA to eventually designate it a, a Superfund site. Give us a quick explainer. What is a Superfund site? Sure. So it's a designation that the EPA came up with several decades ago. You'll often see it uh, as a label used for historic mining operations. Basically, any site in the country which has really bad pollution. And the EPA will come in, designate it a Superfund site. And then along with that, we'll have all of these requirements put in place that the companies who, who own these different facilities, mine operations, whatever it may be, that they have to follow to ensure that the pollution doesn't get worse and clean up uh, what pollution they, they actually can. And so in the case of Blackbird, I mean, it includes, just to give you some numbers here, a 12-acre open pit, 4.8 million tons of waste rock, 2 million tons of tailing, and there's enough tunnels <laughs> underneath the, the former mine that string route for like, you know, 14 to 15 miles. Yeah, I mean, so that that illustrates what the environmental impacts are right there. And, you know, a lot of uh, people in the industry say things have changed, regulations have changed. It's a little bit sure. better now, but <laughs> still, uh, mining, you know, metals is one of the dirtiest things that we can do. So, you know, this is what, where we have to try to strike that balance, right? We need cobalt for the lithium ion batteries. It, it's big business. It impacts the environment in different ways, right? Cleaner energies, cleaner fuels. But, you know, this is the other side of it. We need these metals and that creates a lot of damage to the environment. Yeah, and I think that's really where the, the rubber meets the road here, because, you know, obviously, uh, I think it's 84% of, of cobalt right now is coming from the Congo. And, you know, there's, you can read all kinds of articles about the human right violations and pollution that that's caused down there. And so, you know, I think a lot of people perhaps don't realize some of the complicating factors that go into things like electric vehicles. On the one hand, yes, electric vehicles are the future. You see more and more companies moving towards that, but there is a cost associated with them. If in no other way that, uh, you know, at, at, a, at a local level in places like the Chaman, Salmon Chalice National Forest. Tell me a little bit more about the Blackbird site, if you can, and just kind of 
how it started, how it changed over the years, what's happening now, because it is kind of right there, you know, next to where the new mines are are trying to be set up. Uh, but, you know, there, there's a lot of history that goes into that. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, cobalt was first discovered uh, in this region going back to the early 1900s. But it wasn't until the late 1940s, uh, sort of in the early days of the Cold War, that um, the federal government actually subsidized a company that was mining cobalt in this region. And so, like you said earlier, at the time, uh, these metals were mostly used for the production of jet engines. And so for the 1950s, with the help of subsidies from the federal government, this company that was operating the Blackbird mine became a pretty sizable operation. Uh, and one of the interesting things about it is that there was a company town there just a few miles from the entrance to the mine um, that was actually named Cobalt. And at the height of this town, there was about 1,500 residents living there. Most of the people worked at the mine, their families lived with them. And then <clears throat> in the 1960s, subsidies from the federal government gave away. A few other companies came in, tried to start the mine again, but those efforts never really got anywhere. And then, as I said earlier, in the 1980s, it finally shut down for good. You made mention in the article too, you know, we look to sites like Blackbird and, and the little town Cobalt that you were just mentioning as cautionary tales just to see what happens. That And it proves it, right? The other companies that are maybe possibly going to be getting into this, they're in this wait and see approach. Let's see how it goes. Because we could have, you know, some environmental disasters. The mining boom can take off there if the price continues to stay high for cobalt. And then, uh, you know, maybe the a bust happens, right? It's done. We've tapped what we can. And the little town dies, right? I think you made mention they had to tear down a bunch of the homes that were there, burn them down just to get rid of them. And the new mines are setting up little housing units there as well for the miners that will eventually be working there. So, you know, we look to these old stories to possibly see what could be happening again in the future. You know, I do think there is something to be said for how mining has changed since you know the 1950s. Practices have improved. There are more regulations in place. I mean, the EPA, for example, didn't even exist back then. But you're right. I mean, there are still risks associated with, with doing this kind of mining. And I feel that it's, it's important to actually um, take an honest look at the trade-offs that, that go along with these sorts of things, because you know the EV market is only going to get bigger. And so metals like cobalt have to come from somewhere, at least, you know, as, as lithium ion batteries are currently designed. And, and so it's just important to me, I think, to look at the places that are going to be most affected by that. We're talking about the Idaho cobalt belt and how uh, a few mining operations are just getting started there. You know, just to kind of put it all in perspective, we've been talking about the Congo and how they're the biggest miners of cobalt. They send a lot of it over to China. I think about 85% of what they get, they send to China. How much would we get out of these mining operations here in Idaho? Yeah, so it's it's hard to say right now because the Gervois mine is is the first one that's going to start operation. And like I said, there's five others that are looking to work in the area, but it's unclear if they're going to be successful. And so if I remember correctly from my reporting, I think there currently is enough cobalt in the Gervois operation to power, I want to say 16,000 electric vehicles. So it sounds like a big number, but compared to the cobalt coming out of the, the Congo, it's really just a drop in the bucket. Michael Holtz, contributor to The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment. 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.